downstairs. Oh, there goes the video club. And the Roblox club. I was surprised there weren't more Legos. Maybe that's kind of a trite answer now because everybody knows they're so wonderful. We actually did a Lego build-off at Wildlife this week, which is middle school ministry for Young Life. And I'm sorry, you do not outgrow Legos. The middle schoolers had a great time, but I think the college-age leaders had just as much fun. Don't ever get rid of your Legos. If you do, then call me, okay? I'll take care of that for you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the children of our church and for all of their excitement and energy and joy and <clears throat> smiles and adorableness. We love that they are part of your family. We love that they are part of our church family. Be with us this morning as we look at your word, Lord. Teach us whatever it is that you would have us know. In his name, amen. Um, Welcome, whether you're here in person or online. My name is Crystal Curgis. I've been part of the Riverside family for a long time. I serve as um, the director of discipleship content for the Young Life Mission, and it is an honor and a joy to be opening scripture with you today. It always is. Um, it's mid-February, <laughs> and in Indiana, that means it can't decide if it's winter or spring or some unnamed fifth season that it's still trying to figure out. Uh, it is the perfect time for reading. Actually, it's a perfect time to read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and The Hobbit because they both cover all of the seasonal spans. That's not why it's great to read them, but if you need a reason, that's your first reason. Also, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe is book one, and we can talk about that afterwards if you would like to. Uh, it's also a good season. I actually think winter is a great season, but this season change is a great time to write letters. You're stuck inside a lot, and... Real mail is rare today, and when you get real mail, it's a wonderful thing. I love to write letters. I love to get letters. I have a lot of pen pals for that very reason. I have a whole kind of a steamer trunk size, full box of letters, some that were between me and other people, some that were between ancestors of mine, and they've kind of made their way to me because nobody wanted them. And one of the things about email today is that because it has to, from, subject line, date, everything is marked, there's a lot that you know before you ever read it. You don't have to always know. The context is right there. In handwritten letters, that is not always the case. If you were to pick up some of the handwritten letters from my trunk and look at them, you would not understand them. One from my cousin, Elisa mentions lusikuftas that her mother made for me, my children. And if you didn't know that she lived in Norway and lusikuftas are what they call Norwegian sweaters, you would just think she didn't know how to spell. Um, if you were to read this letter from my grandfather to my grandmother, well, actually, you wouldn't be able to read it. His handwriting was awful. I think he might have been left-handed and forced to write with his right hand his whole life. But you wouldn't understand everything that was going on if you didn't know that he farmed in Nebraska. Um, he references a lot of those things and that he played saxophone in a dance band, which is kind of interesting. If you were to pick up a letter from my grandmother to my grandfather, you wouldn't understand the reference to the headlights. Well, she lived, they were in Nebraska, all the roads, every mile there was a road. They knocked them off very neatly. But there was one, sometimes there wouldn't be a road there because of a gully or a creek, a crick, if that's where you lived. And her house was here, and he would come from here in his Model A, and when she saw the headlights, and there was no road here, she knew she had 10 minutes, because he had a mile and a mile 
and a mile in a Model A on old gravel country roads. She knew how much time he left. She'd watch for the headlights. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't know their story. And if you didn't know about this letter, which is written to my great-grandparents by my uncle, no, my great-great-grandparents by my great-uncle, um, you wouldn't understand the references to the people and to the smells as the snow started to melt. Because you wouldn't know that he was a soldier in Germany in 1945 and things were coming to an end and there were a lot of difficult things to look at. Context makes all the difference when we are reading letters, knowing who's writing, who they're writing to, who they're writing from. Today we're going to look at a little section of 1 Peter and we tend to be, I would say, in the church at large, really big on letters that Paul writes. Uh, Roman, we looked at Romans last week, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. We were very familiar with the letters of Paul. They're part of our favorite stories and favorite messaging. First Peter, we don't read quite as much, I don't think. There's some weird stuff in there about preaching in dungeons and uh, angels and demons and things that are very in the spiritual realm that we don't know, and sometimes we get stuck on those. Today, we're not going to do that. First Peter was written by a very specific person to a very specific group of people, not us, by the way, in a very specific context, which is not our context, by the way, at a very specific time, which is not today. And yet it's still for us because it's in Scripture. And so in order to figure out how it's for us, we have to know how it was for the people that first received it. It was probably written in early to mid-60s A.D., so a really long time ago, 30 years after Jesus died, maybe, people who knew him were still alive, including Peter, who was writing it. It was written, Peter was in Rome when he wrote this letter, and he referred to Rome as Babylon, which was code for all of the bad places and the people who were over, overruling us and kind of tyrannically trying to take charge of things. It was written to followers of Jesus who were Gentiles, not Jewish people who'd begun following Jesus, but Gentile followers who lived in what is today is modern Turkey. So it was written also during a time when Nero had just become Caesar. And Nero was not a great guy. Not lots of good roads and things like that, yes. But in terms of the Christians, um, Christians and Jews had come out of a season where they were fairly safe to practice their faith, but with Nero that changed. And they faced persecution and oppression that you and I can't even begin to imagine. That is the context. You and I, I would say, almost always can safely speak the name of Jesus. We can worship without fear of retaliation. We can read scripture without hiding in our basements, afraid that someone might find us. We can gather openly like we are right now without fear of being thrown into prison. But in Nero's day, that wasn't necessarily the case. You had to be worried and aware of those things all the time. Most of Paul's letters, the ones that we're very familiar with, and Ara talked about Romans last week, were addressed to a group of people who maybe had gone a little off-center from doctrinal truth, or there was some kind of behavior going on that needed to be corrected. Uh, most of Paul's letters can be summarized like this. 
Greetings from Paul, your brother in Christ. I pray for you daily. Stop teaching lies. Stop being selfish. Stop believing false teachers. Strip off your old life. You should know better by now. When will you learn, you're stubborn fools? Oh, and say hello to Timothy for me. That's kind of how they all end with a few little, I'm still here. Peter is not writing to correct behavior necessarily uh, or to lay out certain doctrinal things. He's writing to encourage people who are facing real hardship and reminding them to stand firm and be holy. I'm going to read you a passage from 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. And even though this isn't our context, I would ask you just for a moment, imagine you are a Christian living in a place where it is not safe to worship Christ in public and hear the letter through that lens. Finally, friends, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For as the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and keep your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do good, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Remember that Christ suffered for our sins and he had only done good. And he did that once and for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. I think I'm supposed to be in charge of this. Hmm, here we go. The themes of First Peter are to do good and remain faithful. And really, that recurs all throughout Peter's letter and all of Scripture. I'm going to insert a little, maybe a challenge for us this morning. The Bible is not mostly about me personally being saved by grace. The Bible is mostly about Jesus being crowned the victorious saving king of all creation. And then there is the undeserved invitation for us to enter that story and the challenge to live holy and humble lives as adopted children of God who were called out of darkness into glorious light as Peter writes, or who were transferred from a kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God, as Paul writes. Not once does the Bible highlight my personal relationship with Jesus as being the main thing. In the Bible, it highlights Jesus Christ as the main thing. And invites his invites us to be faithful followers 
who undeservedly get to be part of that story. You may be heard in 1 Peter 3 numerous times <laughs> the challenge to do good. Do good. Do good. Which isn't quite the same thing as being good necessarily. I think doing good maybe equates closer to being holy, which Peter writes about in the first chapter of his first letter. And I don't mean holier than thou, but I mean being set apart as God's people, living within a different framework, setting our sights on eternal foundations, following the truth of Jesus rather than the supposed truth of the world. Peter encourages his original listeners, his hearers, his readers, though it was mostly read to them, to do good many times. But imagine hearing that in their context. When you are threatened with persecution, do good. When you are falsely accused, do good. When you face danger simply because of your identity as a Christ follower, do good. I think we would rather prefer a message of, don't worry, Jesus is going to take all of the problems. He's going to make life easy and good. It's going to be great. But that is never the message of the Bible. Now, I think it can be somewhat easy and enticing to do good when it garners applause and cheering and notice and accolades and status and maybe even a big media platform, and then you're considered an influencer, Christian celebrity. Then maybe doing good is easy. Uh, also, if it doesn't conflict with my hidden desires and inclinations and attitudes, then it might be easy. But doing good or being holy when it is costly and when it threatens our standing, I think that's a different story. I am a story person, and I like to process things sometimes through stories that you read. I am going to read you a little Little very short passage from a story this morning. Shockingly, it's from one of the Chronicles of Narnia, book number five, The Horse and His Boy. And here's the backdrop Shasta has been adopted by an unloving father in a southern kingdom in this other world by a poor, a poor fisherman. He has no money, he has no standing and no money. He meets Bree, who's a talking horse from Narnia, who was kidnapped from Narnia when he was a foal and brought to the southern lands as well. Shasta and Bree meet and decide they are going to run away to freedom, to Narnia and the north. And along their way, they meet a girl named Aravis and her talking horse from Narnia, Huyn. Aravis is trying to escape from her oppressive father in the south lands. And they're all four running away to freedom. It's a combined little runaway escape. It's a great story. At that point, it's just about them personally. The four of us are going to get away to freedom. But along the way, they are commissioned to warn a king, King Loon, in the northern lands that the enemies from the south are coming to invade and capture them. So now they have a mission and a quest and a purpose beyond just running away. Well, for many long weeks, Shasta just gets snootiness from Aravis because she's a noble woman and he's a poor adopted fisherman's boy. Um, but in the end, it's Shasta who does the guiding, he does brave and daring things. The last long stretch of their journey is through a very dangerous desert. They have no food, they have no water, there are wild animals attacking them. And he's the one who gets them to safety into this beautiful little hermitage in the middle of this dangerous desert. And Shasta believes that he is finally 
safe and that all of his good deeds are going to be rewarded with peace and rest and probably a little bit of reward and um, you've done a great job kind of thing. So they're in this beautiful place. It's full of still beautiful water that they can drink. The ground is soft and green. There are trees that are giving shade after all of the sun. Shasta is exhausted and tired. And there is a man in this beautiful little oasis, and he says, are you King Loon? Because Shasta thinks, my quest is done, and I'm going to be able to deliver my message, and I've done all my good deeds. And the man says, no, I am the hermit of the Southern March. And now, my son, waste no time on questions, but obey. The girl is wounded, Aravis. Your horses are spent. The enemy is at, is at this moment finding a way over the river. But if you run now, without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to war, warn King Loon. Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt that he had no strength left. And he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty and the unfairness of the demand because he had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and a harder and a better one. But all he said out loud was, where is the king? And then he starts running. And it is a long run. For those of you who aren't story people, but maybe chart people, we'll break this down into a flow chart for you. Do good. That is a gold star that is exactly the color of Purdue Colors. I took it off the internet. Even though they have not done good this week, we're going to let them have the gold star color, okay? It's Sunday, and there's time for redemption, though. <laughs> Do good. Now, if you get praised, or if you get good in return... That's really no score for you. That makes doing good easy. But in Peter's time, for his readers, doing good and being identified as an authentic Christian often led to suffering. For us today, the suffering might be di different. Um, if you, in your school, have a, if there's a student in your school who is often overlooked, ignored, mocked, laughed at, and you decide that you're going to sit with them at lunch every day, that is doing good. And it's very possible that people are going to mock and laugh at you for doing good. That might be a little bit of suffering in one sense. When you suffer, Peter says, don't retaliate and don't worry in fear. Instead, worship. That is supposed to be our response to suffering, which makes absolutely no sense in the world's economy. Worshiping doesn't necessarily mean that we gather to sing and pray, though it's lovely when we do that in church. It means that we still believe that God is present. We still believe that Jesus is the reigning king. We still believe that the spirit is powerful and active in our lives. And we still believe that our highest calling is to live holy, obedient lives. But imagine the first readers of this letter or any brothers and sisters we have in countries where Christians are persecuted, hearing that they are supposed to worship in face of suffering. Today, if you suffer, not necessarily because of being a Christian, but with illness, or relational unrest, or inner worry and anxiety, it seems as though, even though First Peter written wasn't, wasn't written to us, it's still saying, can you, in the midst of suffering, still find a place to be able to worship? 
And then, if you worship in the face of suffering, people are probably going to ask you why. The verse in, Feast per, in, the verse in 1 Peter that says, always be ready to give an answer to someone who asks you for a reason for your hope, we often take that out and we go, oh, I need to be ready to witness and lead someone to the Lord anytime they ask me about that. But really it's in response to, if you're worshiping in the face of suffering, people are probably going to ask you why, and we should be ready to explain why. Why are we worshiping in the midst of suffering? Here's the ways that we can respond to why. We can snub. I don't have time for you. Don't ask me that. If you can't figure it out, that's really on you. We might uh, sneer. Really? Really, you need to ask me why I'm worshiping in the face of suffering. Don't you know me? However that might be. But there's all these different responses. We could snarl. We could snap. We could snivel, which means, can I tell you about how terrible life is before we ever get to the why I'm worshiping part? All of these make our answer about me and not about Jesus. Really, this response that Peter encourages us to give is to share. To share why we can still worship and be hopeful in the face of suffering. Which doesn't mean we can't talk about what's going on, but it means that we make it about Jesus and not primarily about me. We make it about what we've learned of him, what we experience, what we know of him. By sharing, I want to be really, well, these answers over here, if that's how we respond, it means that we were not really authentically worshiping in the first place. It was just show. It was hypocrisy. It was fake. And that might be our most, our most authentic self in the moment. If so, we need to do some self-analysis. I think we want our authentic self to be someone who worships in the face of suffering. But oftentimes, our most authentic self in those moments is not that person. And I want to be clear that when the world tells you to be authentic, it is saying, you do you. You be true to your dreams. Live your most authentic self. And I would say, that's why Jesus had to come and save us in the first place. Because we were all being true to me rather than being faithful to him. That's why he had to come and rescue the world. Because humanity was so busy being our authentic, selfish selves but now we can be redeemed into new authentic selves who have died to self so that we can live for him and his plans and his designs and his purposes and his universe living under his authority. A few real quick last thoughts. People should see Jesus in us before they ever hear us speak about Jesus. Mark tells this to his college young life and wildlife leaders all the time. If people don't see Jesus in you, they're not going to want to hear about him from you. People will not ask about the hope in us unless they actually see hope in us. And people cannot see hope in us unless there actually is hope in us. Would be a good question this week to ask ourselves, is the hope of the Lord in me, and do people see it? And I think the other thing I want to say, because it could be easy to go, I actually don't need to talk about Jesus unless someone asks me about the hope that's in me. 
but that is to misread that scripture. It doesn't say, never talk about him until someone asks you about the hope that they see in you. It's just saying that when that happens, you should be ready. Here is all of it boiled down. Do good religiously. I don't mean self-righteously, I mean religiously. Like, if you follow a certain athletic team religiously because you love them that much, do good religiously. Endure hurt patiently. Worship God faithfully and speak truth gently. Be good, be holy, speak gently, speak truly. Those are words that Peter wrote 2,000 years ago to people on the other side of the world that are still very true for us today right here in Lafayette, West Lafayette, whatever part of Indiana is home for you. Do good. Be holy. Speak gently. Speak truly. We can do that because the Spirit lives within us and indwells us. That's shockingly such good news. Let's pray together. Lord, everybody in this room is probably facing some kind of suffering of their own. And I pray that in the midst of what can be worrisome and fearful and overwhelming, that we would remember that you are present, your son is king, and the spirit fills us. And Lord, will you please shape us into people who in the face of suffering, when there is no logical reason to feel this way, we are able to say, and yet God is, God loves, God reigns, and I will worship him by giving him my whole heart, mind, and soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.